Welcome to Called by the Gospel, a show where we listen to stories of people discovering the clarity of law and gospel and the joy of the freedom that comes uh, from knowing Christ and being known by Him. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Pastor Evan Gagline is with me. Pastor Gagline, how are you? Ah, good. Good to be here. I'm glad to be doing this new thing we're calling uh, Called by the Gospel. This is fun. I I know it. I got another story for you, and this is... Uh, the story of Pastor Jeff Boyle. Here, I'll, I'll let him introduce himself here. I'm Jeff Boyle, pastor of Grace and Trinity Lutheran Churches in Wichita, Kansas. I am about to tell my story of how I became Lutheran. I was born as a Roman Catholic, and then I um, ended up going to Campus Crusade and being a big part of that through my early college years, and then I became a Lutheran. Pastor Jeff Boyle, you know the guy? I do. Uh, we went to Madagascar together for the first time when we were in seminary. And I, I had no idea his background. I had no idea that he uh, grew up as a Roman Catholic. I had no idea he was involved with Campus Crusade. So I'm anxious to hear his story. I asked him what his uh, childhood, what, what his faith was like when he was a kid. And here's his answer to that question. I was always, I'm sure, giving my mom a hard time about taking us to church. But never in a sense of sort of calculated unbelief. Uh, I was not wanting to uh, leave the church. I just wanted to go sailing and do something else. So um, I would say my faith was there. It was likely not something that I thought about. That's, I think, something that a lot of us can relate to. You know, you're kind of you're a kid and you're going to church, but Jeff told me how his dad didn't and his mom did. And there was, so every Sunday it was, you know, well, with mom or with dad, sailing with dad or to the church with mom. And, and that was just a particularly kind of practical question. And I think that that kind of disengagement um, existed for most of his childhood until high school. He, he started becoming more interested in his faith, in the scripture. He started dating Nikki, his wife. Um, and, uh, and they were went to college uh, together, but it was at college that he became involved with Campus Crusade, and here's how he tells that story. It was very awkward at first, especially I remember my freshman year in the dorm. We probably had been there about a week or two, and we got a knock on the door, and I roomed blind, so uh, my roommate, who was a very devout atheist, answered the door, and there were these two Campus Crusade for Christ guys standing there. They had asked for me, since I had filled out one of those free pizza coupon things, and uh, they wanted to talk to me about uh, the faith and about my belief. And I remember specifically them asking me if I had a moment when I had given my life to Jesus. And I didn't know what to say, because at that point I was actually fairly strong, or at least coming into my faith for about a year and a half at that point. And I felt terrible because I didn't have a moment when I had given my life to Jesus. So I just said, oh, oh yeah, sure, I, I have. And then they asked, well, when was that? <laughs> I said, well, I don't know. And they said, well, you probably haven't then. And that was kind of the moment where I realized I had not been taking my faith seriously, I had been convinced by them that I did need a time and a date, and I didn't know any better at that point. So I simply said, yes, I had, but I, I didn't know when, and I hadn't done it maybe the way they had thought, but this is something I needed to give more thought to. 
Uh, so there it is, the engagement with Campus Crusade. What do you think about that? Well, uh, I actually wanted to get your thought on this because uh, you've, you've probably thought about this more than I have. But there's this um, incessant need to try and point to a moment for the sake of assurance. And, and I mean, this goes all the way back to, you remember um, what John Wesley reading Luther's commentary on Romans, and this is when he has this assurance experience. And now all of American Christianity has fallen suit to place the knowledge of my salvation in a experience or a moment. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's one of the marks of pietism that you can point to the day, the, to the to the hour, to the instant that you went from being a non-Christian to a Christian. And that moment is when you dedicated your life to Christ, when you gave your um, heart over to him. Th- this is, I mean, it's it's an important thing that um, Pastor Boyle points out to us, that and that the that the thing he remembers this distinctive of Campus Crusade, which is just an evangelical campus ministry. It's called the Crew now, C R U. Um, campus Crusade, I guess, sounded a little bit kind of imperialistic, so they changed the name. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure. Now it sounds the more Crusades like an old Navy have... staff or something like that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But um, uh, but the you know the mark for this evangelicalism for this Pietism is that is that moment when you surrendered, when when you made the decision. And um, in fact, you know, on every Gideon's Bible, on the back page, it has that, it has it where you write it down, the moment when you gave your life to Christ. It is, that's the most important moment for you in the history of the world. Now, J- Jeff has this problem because he grew up Catholic, he's involved uh, somewhat in the Lutheran Church, he's going to this campus crusade, and they're saying to him, well, when is that moment? When was it? And if you can't point to it, then, well, we're pretty sure you haven't done it yet. You haven't dedicated your life to Christ. And that pressure mounted so much so that that even though he thinks he was probably a Christian, he went and dedicated his life to Christ. Here's that story. Every every Friday night they had their large group meeting. And every Friday night they would have someone give their testimony about how they ended up coming to, to Christ. And they would always have an opportunity for people to raise their hands or to just stand up. And there would be staff people from Crusade as well as some of the senior students that would come and be willing to come and pray around you. And um, now I had never done that, actually. I had never seen that done, so I didn't know how to react so at one point, I just decided to stand up and had people pray around me. And uh, at least at that moment, I thought I had given my life to Jesus. So there you go. It's this pressure to make the decision. This is the. This is really the pressure that um, the evangelical feels and is under, not only for themselves, but then also for everybody else. So you to to dedicate your life to to um, to give your life to Christ. The, the what we call decision theology is it is the governing thought. It's the governing act of worship, and as you pointed out, it's the place where you find your um, where you find your assurance. I remember when I was taking psychology one hundred and one in college, and uh, towards the end of the the semester, the professor showed a uh, a video that was originally a a, a, a scientific test, um, but they ended up making it also a candid camera show episode or thing. 
And the thing is that um, they had like five people in the elevator and the sixth person walks in. And then halfway through the elevator ride, five of the people just turn around in the middle of the ride and face the back of the elevator. And nine times out of ten, the sixth person who walked on unbeknownst to anything going on also faces the back of the elevator for no reason. Um, but the point was is that how we always want to kind of go with the flow. You know, we we want to fit in. We I mean, we we give in to the to to do what people around us are doing. And I kind of think that that this is maybe more of what's going on here. Uh, not that he heard his sin preached to him or heard the gospel, but well, everybody else had this experience and, and he was lacking in some way. I remember when we were in high school, we would get a group of us, 10, 11 of us, and we'd stand at a door. And mostly, the, you know, if you could stand like at a janitorial closet or something like that, and we'd make a line there and we'd act really excited. And then other people <laughs> would start to stand in line and we'd let people cut and this sort of thing. And then eventually all of us would leave and then you'd have this line of people just standing there. You're a similar practice. sort of thing. <laughs> I know it. I know it. Now, th- this, but you're right. I mean, this is the expectation. Uh, um, piety is shaped um, together as you mm. live together in a certain church. So every church is going to have a shape of its piety. Its theology is going to work itself out into its practice. That's just it's how it goes. The ancient church says... Uh, lex arendi, lex credendi, how you pray is how you believe, and probably vice versa. The, the point is these things are related to each other. And if if you believe that this, you know, giving your heart to Christ um, is the moment, is the mark of conversion, if this is the chief thing to being a Christian, then that's going to manifest itself in the worship and in the piety and in the practice of the people. And so you can kind of hear Pastor Boyle um, absorbing even a, a little bit reluctantly, a little bit unknowingly, um, particular—I mean, innocently sh- for sure—but he's absorbing the piety and the theology of Campus Crusade as he goes through this sort of thing. I asked him directly about this piety, uh, and he told me this story. This is great. You're going to love it about uh, the Romans challenge. How there was a challenge to uh, read through the Book of Romans every day for 50 days, and here's how that went. Sure. Yeah, there was there was this one challenge that uh, that I was particularly interested to do and did it. Uh, part of the challenge was to get us back into the scriptures, but it was fifty times, or they had some clean way of saying it, but fifty times reading through Romans. So, so you read Romans in its entirety every day for fifty days, and. In hindsight, it was wonderful because you actually get to know what Paul's, at least you get to hear all of what Paul's saying. Uh, however, at the end of it, you are in, in some ways a sort of super Christian for having completed the challenge. And in the end, there was no instruction on what Romans, in fact, meant. It was simply to say, we need to be doing this and we need to be having devoted time reading our Bible and setting up that sort of difficult challenge would allow for maybe an easier entrance into a daily reading of Scripture. How about that? So it's a Romans challenge, uh, but in the end, the Romans challenge ends up doing the whole point of undoing the whole point of Romans. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
you know, we're, Paul is teaching there how how we're saved by grace through faith, and um, and you end up making it into such an act of piety that now the the point was I I'm the, I'm the super Christian, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm the uh, I'm the one that that has accomplished these great works so that these so that the the even the goodness of the good work has been robbed because there's there's two, there's pride in it and there's comfort in it and and our good works are supposed to undo pride and undo i mean we're not supposed to look for comfort in our good works that's what that's what the promise of the gospel is for but good works in this context end up being you know almost completely undone of their of any sort of of their goodness that, that that almost comes automatically by calling it uh, a challenge, <laughs> a Romans challenge. I mean, I, I was thinking, boy, reading through Romans fifty times would be amazing. I mean, you you would really know the book of Romans quite well if you did that. Um, however, calling it a challenge makes it, as he said, this uh, this prize at the end that I I have done the thing, I have completed the challenge, which um, doesn't actually point us to a deeper knowledge of our Savior, which would be the point of reading Romans, um, but rather a uh, pointing to myself as one who, uh, like, finished the uh, the Hungry Man Challenge or something like this. <laughs> I'm, by the way, in the middle of a fitness challenge. Did I tell you about that? Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll have to tell you. That's Maybe we can do—you uh, can interview me for one of these stories, and I'll tell you about my fitness challenge. Tell me about Getting how you got around so the muscular. Gym by... <laughs> <laughs> by these, you know, 17-year-old kids, you know, who have authority over me just because their body mass is less than mine. What's your anyway. first athletic now, memory? <laughs> I remember, uh, you know, t- somersaults in the womb. Now, one of the marks of the evangelical piety, and, and I asked Pastor Boyle about this, is always going to be the worship service and... um and and how the worship service is you know creating this experience of oneness with god but also how other people are showing their um their faith in their acts of worship and he told me this story now so listen carefully to this one this is going to a worship service one of their friday night services with nikki his his lutheran uh wife to be girlfriend and wife to be and with their friend, good friend, who was also a Lutheran, at this praise service, and and his rea- and their reaction to it, and his reaction to it. Here, this is just great. Here it is. I distinctly remember, it was called. I think it was called the Hour of Power or something like that. I mean, they just have the worst names for this stuff. But I remember it being. It was on on campus in this huge, huge auditorium. And we were way up high, maybe in the balcony or something like that. And it was me and Nikki, my wife, and at that time our our best friend that was my roommate. And I made him come along. And he was just, he was a good Lutheran, just like my wife was. And they they did not want to go, but they went for my sake. And I remember specifically standing and, you know, patting on the seat in front of me, like playing the drums or something like that. And holding my hands up and looking over and seeing my friend Joe just sitting there and, and Nikki, my, at that time, my girlfriend, but I mean, we were seriously dating and, and she was standing, but she was clearly not into it. And I remember afterwards going, going back to the dorms and that sort of thing and saying, 
what was what was wrong? Was something um, were you upset or why were you not into the worship? And she really, it was terrible that I even asked that sort of thing because I, I coerced her into you know sort of thinking that she was less Christian for not feeling the, the worship as I was. And so she gave something, well, you know, I just wasn't, you know, I, I just don't feel comfortable with that sort of stuff. And she was at least very honest about that. And, and I had in my mind that by doing that, I was actually being Christian. And by her not doing that, I was actually thinking that there was something to be worried about with her faith. Because if if she doesn't feel comfortable doing that, why is she so concerned about what other people think? And uh, why is she so concerned about people judging her when this is all about um, giving ourselves to Christ and that sort of thing? Uh, so, so I remember being upset about that because I didn't want to be upset with her about it. And I didn't want to make her feel bad about it. But at the same time, I was worried. So... I I re, I remember being troubled after that instance of even how I would react in those cases and uh and trying not to maybe pressure her so much but always thinking that is that's what makes you Christian. <laughs> so so that uh the the way people act in worship is sort of the um uh, what the the I don't want to say the defining uh, the litmus test, but um, like wh- where you're going to see someone really be a Christian is going to be in in worship, and that would be seen through the the reaction to the activity that's going on. Am I, am I getting close to what he's right. saying? Yeah, I know you're right on it, and and, and he's and, and then and he's judging Nikki. Because he thinks that she's worried about being judged <laughs> by the people that are there, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can't. So there's, if there's any, um, and and so the spiritual judgment here takes place on if you have restraint. See, so the mark of being spiritual in the praise service is um, is abandonment, um, that you kind of let yourself go, mm. that you lose control. And if mm. you are, if you're holding back, you know, if you're sitting down, if you're not waving your hands, if you're, if you're acting like a normal person, that's an indication that you're not being moved by the spirit there. Mm. You see, so oh, obviously the spirit is there moving. Obviously I'm being moved. So if you're not being moved, you must be resisting the spirit. And yet you hate to say that about someone. You know they're a Christian and so forth. And yet that's that's what you're being taught to say. You see, um, it's really phenomenal how. Um, there, there is this, and I, I, it, and maybe it's not everywhere, but in in my own experience, one of the marks of the praise service is that everybody is judging everybody else's spirituality, and like uh, uh, Pastor Boyle said, they also feel guilty that they're doing that because <laughs> they know that it's not about that, and yet you can't hardly help it. I mean. Um, you, you know, when when you go to a liturgical church, everybody stands, everybody kneels, everybody sits. You're not. It's, but when you go to the for the praise pre, uh, free for all, it's the first person to raise their hands. Obviously, is the person who's most sensitive to the moving of the Holy Spirit. Um, 
you, you know, everyone's doing this individually. So, so that so that the liturgical service is calling for a uniformity, uh, that we actually confess together, we pray together, we sing together, um, and 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 it's really not calling for any outliers, <laughs> you know, anyone to to rise above the crowd. Um, but but what at least at least what uh, Jeff Boyle was saying is that um, in his experience it was coming to worship with the eye at the neighbor <laughs> to to see you know it, how am I uh, measuring up in in this moment with the person next to me. Yeah, and those of us who have been in this place remember. I mean, you bring your friends to the service, and you're you're wondering what they're going to do, you know. And especially at the end, when it's every eye closed, you have your eyes, you're squinting to see if the pagan neighbor that you brought to the service is going to respond to the altar call and go down and give their heart to Christ. It's, it, it's, I mean, it's one of the marks of individual worship is that it becomes an individual performance. And one of the marks of individual performance is that it gets judged or critiqued or at least observed. And it's, it's almost inescapable. I uh, I'm gonna just dwell with uh, the, I'm gonna I think we're getting a sense of how it was in Campus Crusade. I'm gonna do one more thing because he was also a teacher, and then there's gonna be three different uh, things that are gonna kind of break out of the Campus Crusade thing. At least the theological um, the the theological angst is going to begin. But this will be the last one. I asked um, Pastor Boyle what he taught and learned in Campus Crusade, and he told me this. Oh, I I remember having to do a number of those studies on underage drinking being a huge one and uh, sex before marriage and, and some of the common college campus sort of things. And, and mind you, this is at a very liberal uh, university. This is at the University of Michigan, uh, big school, uh, lots of parties and that sort of thing. So that was a common temptation for people. So we would address that a lot. But typically what we would end up doing is just picking one of Paul's letters and working through it. I, I honestly can say I never remember in one of those Bible studies ever going through one of the Gospels, nor did we ever have any sort of consistent reading through of the Old Testament. There are a few times when we would go through the Psalms, but it was always Paul's epistles. Yeah, do you have a sense of why that was? Thinking back on it a bit more, Paul's epistles lend themselves to sort of clear-cut teachings, and also they are very easily turned into cliches. And so you can you can take these little snippets of his writings and totally remove them from their context, and turn the conversation in a way that is very much, in fact, under the law rather than what Paul's main argument is, uh, keeping us under grace. So that, um, and this is true. I remember, uh, and maybe all young theologians, um, start with Paul's epistles. Um, but he, but Pastor Boyle made the particularly interesting point that you can take Paul's teaching out of context. And so that Paul now becomes some of the easiest stuff to twist, um, so that you can take it away from, the gospel, and you could turn it into law. And I remember, I think I've told you this story, that uh, that I have my old um, Evangelical Days Bible, and I remember looking through it and noting that 
the texts that I underlined and the texts that I marked were all the texts of instruction, uh, all the texts of law, all the texts of what to do, and the texts that are just blank that I didn't really know any, what to do with were the texts about um, the gospel, the texts about the Lord's promises, the texts about grace. Hmm. I remember we, we, on our um, other wildly popular podcast called Table Talk Radio, we played a, we played a game to that effect one time. Do you remember that where where uh, we, where one person would say a gospel promise, and the other person would somehow turn and twist and make it law again? And this is oftentimes how um, people are trained to think that if I if I am under the notion that Christianity is about me uh, doing things to make God happy with me, um, then every gospel promise has to be converted into law in order for it to fit into my system. That's right. Because you're reading the Bible and you're asking the question, uh, what should I do today? And the Bible's answering that question. And that that question means that the only answer you're going to get is law. So you're going to have to make the gospel somehow sound like the law. Hmm. And the results are pride and despair. Now, this starts to break down for Pastor Boyle in two different directions, maybe three. Uh, the first is there arose a theological conflict about baptism. Now, there's a reason why I think a lot of, the, a lot of these conflicts happen over baptism. But here's his, um, here's his account, and this is a bit of a longer quote or a longer uh, s- section that's going to tell this story about uh, this theological conflict. So I was... Teaching our dorm Bible study. This is probably my second year at this point. And I was teaching just on, uh, I don't know if it was Galatians or whether we were reading First Peter, but uh, we, were, we were reading one of these epistles, and maybe it was even Romans 6, but baptism came up. So I simply, as I'm, I'm reading this, I'm relying heavily on the little text notes in the study Bible, and, and my my wife, now my my girlfriend at that point, my wife now, had given me this Concordia Self-Study Bible. And so someone had asked about baptism, and the, the text was something that just lent itself so easily to say baptism saves. So I read the little text note, and it said, yeah, this is uh, about baptism, which is not a symbol, and it saves. And then someone else in the Bible study read the exact same reference note in their bible except for one word it says baptism this is a symbol and it does not save and it was just light bulbs going off on how the two bibles could have the exact same footnote for the whole paragraph except for those two words which drastically changed one way or the other whichever it was now this is um just to interrupt here one of the things that concordia publishing house did when they Concordia Self-Study Bible came out, I don't know when that was, in the 80s or 90s or something, they took the NIV Study Bible with the NIV Study Bible notes, and they brought them over, and they simply edited the notes. So they they would change the notes, they would add stuff on baptism, they would um, add stuff on the Lord's Supper, they'd take out some of the Reformed doctrine, they tried to take out as much as they could. But now what happens, you see, is he's teaching this Bible study, and he's relying on the notes, and he has this this Concordia <laughs> Self-Study Bible, and someone else has the NIV Study Bible, and they're reading it, and he says, look, my notes say baptism saves, and someone else says baptism does not save, and wait a minute. And then they're reading all the other notes, and they're exactly the same. 
<laughs> Did you see that? That's great. That was very that was very smooth, so now that, smooth of Nikki to slip that in. I, I got you something for I your know, birthday. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Here's a catechism. Here's a tattoo of Luther's rose. You know, this is really good. Okay. Now, looking at this difference on baptism is going to start... Um, this is where the plaster starts to crack. So Pastor Boyle continues. And... And that got me to thinking a bit about baptism, but but what urged the process on was after that, and the, and the Bible study itself um, went went along fine, and there was no animosity during the study. But my discipler, who was on staff at Campus Crusade, had asked me to meet with him, and we got some coffee, and he ended up saying that I couldn't teach on baptism anymore. And I was I was just shocked. I said, "Well, why is that?" He said, "Well, it's it's divisive," and I I honestly was naive enough to not realize that baptism was divisive among Christians. I just assumed that everyone believed baptism actually saved, and I think that was enough of a remnant of my at least weekly catechesis that would go on in the Roman Church to simply say that baptism does something and. And the at least the ritual around it or whatever it was, when I saw baptism, I didn't see it as a symbolic practice. It was actually delivering something. And so that certainly struck me the wrong way when he said that. And and I said, Well, you know, I'm I'm fairly sure baptism does save. And and then he asked me, Well, were you baptized? I said, Yeah, as as a as a child. And he said, Well, then you know you might not have actually been baptized, and it was just uh, totally just different words that I had ever thought of for baptism, and and so that sent me into a study of baptism. And I had a student discipler, also a senior, who uh, gave me his Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. So I read everything in that on baptism, and I was just convinced that this guy had not actually read the scriptures, and and that actually forced me to read what the scriptures say on baptism and take it seriously. Uh, at that point, I believe it was coinciding with a break from school, but I went back to our home church in Michigan and and our associate pastor there had given me the catechism uh, and said, well, you might consider what, what this has to say about baptism. And just even that first part, he also showed me the explanation in the back, but but even that first part, just those four simple questions in there, the verses that go with them. It was like my eyes were being opened to what the scriptures say so plainly and simply uh, that that I ended up going and, and looking further. I ended up writing a paper for one of my classes on this, particularly infant baptism in the early church. And I was just becoming more and more at that point disillusioned with what I was hearing. And, and I should say mainly from the top or the... Uh, for whatever hierarchy there is in crusade, it was it was really from those in authority over me that were objecting to teaching on baptism. So there it is, baptism. Huh. Um, so maybe a couple of points there. First of all, um, I mean, I want to tie in what he just said to where we started, that um, when, when he was a kid, he, he wasn't this kind of, I think he used the phrase, calculated atheist who didn't want to go. Uh, he just, you know, was a kid that would go to church sometimes, but just didn't really care. You know, Sunday morning brought a, a sailing trip, then that sounds 
a little bit like more fun than going to church. Um, but even even therein, he was learning something about the days that he uh, went to mass, or he mentioned a uh, a weekly catechesis, something going on where he's learning something about baptism. Now, move ahead to to college, where he's for the first time encountering Christians who believe something different than he does, and uh, and he he doesn't quite know why, but because of the practices he that he had as a kid knew what they were saying about baptism was wrong. <laughs> it's, isn't that profound? Right. No, no, it's very profound. And I think it's an interesting thing, too, that so the evangelical church would see baptism as a, they understand it as a divisive issue, but they understand it as a minor theological point, not as a major theological point. There, there's going to be a de-emphasis on baptism. Most Most of the times, you know, something like Campus Crusade, they won't, do baptisms, you know, they'll refer to the local church or something like this, but they will question your infant baptism. And so Jeff, <laughs> Jeff had to go through that, you know, hey, oh, you were baptized as a baby, well, that, that didn't count, and why? Because it wasn't connected to your decision. So this, this, um, this theology is now manifesting itself. It's why baptism, by the way, is one of our um, apex theological points, in other words, a lot of people get kind of overwhelmed at all of the the differences between between the different churches, you know? I mean, look, they say, look, there's all these different denominations, all these different doctrines. How can you sort out what, you know, what's true and what's not and all this sort of stuff? But there are some points that are particularly practical. Like for example, should we baptize the babies, you know? What are we doing when we take the Lord's Supper? And these apex theological questions are also eminently practical questions, and they force now the these theological distinctions to be made. But, but, but Jeff is going to tell us that um, that he he still didn't he still thought that this thing about baptism was just maybe a quirky thing about his local campus crusade. He he didn't realize that he was seeing two totally different th- theologies colliding with one another, you see? And this is also one of the marks of a lot of people who are in evangelicalism is that you're, it's, you, you can't see the forest through the trees. You might have been taught a particular theology, but you were never taught uh, any of the other theologies um, to compare it with. And this could be true also of a Lutheran or Catholic or anybody. You just learn your own thing and you don't learn what other people think. And you encounter different doctrines and you're like, whoa, you know, Christians think different things about different stuff. But he still did not see that this was this kind of collide. Um, I think I asked him if he had the theological conversations with the leadership of Campus Crusade. And here's how he uh, responded to that. Uh, no, yeah, I would say I did not think of it in terms of a systemic sort of problem with Crusade. I really didn't know anything about Crusades history at that point. I didn't know these denominational differences. I knew that I had been raised Roman Catholic and I knew that most of the people in Crusade were not Roman Catholic. And and so I really did not have an idea that there was this sort of disparity among all of them. I just figured this was my supervisor basically saying that this is potentially harmful to what's going on. Um, I certainly didn't see it as a sort of Luther situation where I'm being quieted or anything like that. Uh, 
uh, from letting the secret out. I just, um, I was very confused why this was even an issue. I think that there's, this is an important thing to remember, uh, especially for people who haven't been through these kind of theological struggles. Um, and those, you know, especially those people who are in the Lutheran church and are, and are talking to people who are outside the Lutheran church and this sort of thing, um, is there's not this, hmm, a lot of times the, the, there's just not the sense that when you go to a church that doesn't, ha- that doesn't really embrace the history of the church and it doesn't tell the stories of all these great fights that the church has been having to maintain the truth of the scriptures for the last 2,000 years, then you, then you don't ha- get the sense that there are different competing theologies out there. You just can't quite see it, you know. Um, it's, it's almost as if when you're reading the Bible, you're the first person to have read it. And hmm. there's not, it, you, you don't know that there's these 2,000 years of, of reading and listening and fighting and arguing and writing and preaching on these texts. And, um, and it seems strange to us. I mean, it even, even though I, I mean, I remember being at the same spot in my own life, it seems strange to us to think of it now that you're, that you, you hear, hear these people that say that, you know, infant baptism doesn't count, baptism doesn't save, and you, you see from the Scripture clearly that it does, but it, you don't understand that it, this doesn't fit into the bigger theological contexts. You, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that's sort of um, what we talk about, the um, felicitous inconsistency, that that the, the uh, theologies that would actually go against and tear apart our belief in faith alone um, can coexist simply because uh, almost by God's grace, we don't put two and two together. Yep. No, that's exactly right. And that felicitous inconsistency is what, well, really, in fact, we would say by definition, it's what the Christians who are in churches that do not teach the truth, that's the state that they're in. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. Now, there's going to be two more conversations that I think are really fascinating that are going to lead to uh, 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 Pastor Boyle to getting law and gospel. And the first is this. Uh, Nikki, his then fiance, now wife, is the niece of Elaine Graff, Warren Graff's wife. So our listeners should be familiar <laughs> with uh, Pastor Warren Graff of Albuquerque, New Mexico. They're part of the same family, and they would see each other at Christmas and so forth. And um, and so and so Jeff, uh, especially when he first got a hold of the Four Spiritual Laws, which is basically like the Catechism for Campus Crusade, he was so excited to show that to Pastor Graff, and at Christmas time had the opportunity to do that. So I asked him how. <laughs> wait, wait, before can you, you play imagine that. that conversation? Yeah, I mean, I, I I can see young Jeff with these four four spiritual laws freshly <laughs> freshly memorized. Get, Excited to tell Pastor Graf this as if he's never heard such a thing before. <laughs> right. And maybe with the hope that he'll become a Christian. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Here's how Jeff tells the story. Um, Warren Graf is actually the uh, husband of Elaine Graf, who is my wife's aunt. So uh, so he is Uncle Warren, or as my kids call him, Uncle Horan. Uh, so, so he is... Um, he was over at the house uh, at Nikki, my wife's uh, mom's house, uh, one Christmas break or wherever it was. And, and I had been all excited. This must have been our first break home, probably our first break back uh, our freshman year. And I, I was all excited at this point. 
and I had my four spiritual laws with me that I was just, I was sure, because at that point I really had no idea. I was sure Warren would be so excited about these. I thought he would be thrilled that I was concerned with these sort of theological things. And so I, I remember pulling them out and, and talking through them with him. And uh, he probably doesn't remember any of this, but but he kind of gave me one of those smiles. He said, this is just rubbish. Uh, and and I was, uh, you know, at, at that point, at least, I, I wasn't crushed by any means. I just figured he was old, stodgy German Lutheran and really didn't didn't know how important these were. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and I'd say that part's true at least. But uh, but no, he he then proceeded to show me how illogical they were, especially when you compare them to the witness of the scriptures. And I I honestly didn't know my scriptures well at all, especially at that point. I had only just begun reading my Bible in the first place a year and a half or so before that. So so in that way, I, I saw these four spiritual laws. They made sense to me, and, and it was very simple. And if the point of this is just to bring people to Jesus and to get them to give their hearts to him, then why would you want to make it more complicated than this? And and he he had a way of of talking about it that I couldn't argue against. I didn't like, I just, I maybe discredited him for it, thinking he just didn't quite know it, but but I did respect him. And so I ended up thinking more about it. But then there, this would happen regularly as we'd come back. And I ended up calling him fairly frequently and still do. But uh, when I don't understand how these things work, I, I would just call him and say, well, what what is it about this that, that, that doesn't make sense? Why is this illogical? Because I, I see that it makes sense and you say that it doesn't. And so where is that disconnect? And he would always very patiently walk through it with me and and i still when he talks i i get the first 10 minutes or so and then, then i okay warren i need a break because i it is uh he he certainly has a very good handle on how to think through this logically that i didn't have i think that's great just to imagine that you know sitting around with the eggnog you know <laughs> I, I'm, I'm picturing him saying, "This is just rubbish." <laughs> <laughs> but he did it. He did it very patiently. You know, he didn't. You know, did. But you, you heard how? I mean, you heard a lot in that. One is how excited Pastor Boyle was at the four spiritual laws. Here's his first taste of systematic theology. And what are the four spiritual laws? Is something like God? God loves you. Has a wonderful plan for your life. That's law one. Law two is, I mean, you know when you're calling something the spiritual laws, you're, you're going to be in trouble. But <laughs> Law two is sin separates us from God. Law three is Christ in his death has made a way for us to reunite with God, something like this. That's where the you have the picture of the canyon, and now the cross comes down and makes a bridge. And then law four is um, to be saved, we have to accept Jesus. And it shows you walking across from sin to Jesus, or from sin to God, on the bridge of the cross. That's the four spiritual laws, and um, and the point where it falls apart is the, well, it, I mean, it falls apart at every point. I mean, it can be critiqued at every point, but the chief point 
is that um, it has the chief act of conversion is our decision, so that the cross of Jesus is potential salvation. And this is the point that um, that's going to make it break down for Pastor Boyle, is is the this active role of the will um, in in man's conversion. I I, I think um, part of the part of the um, aspect of that last soundbite there that you played is that we see that um, that Jeff Boyle has a person to to really kind of to push these things up against, and and I think that's going to make a big difference in his thinking. Um, I also also noticed that that he said that he respect Pastor Graf. And I think that if it was just some stranger on the street would have said the exact same thing, he would have said, "Okay, that that guy is a crazy." Um, but but the fact that he had a little bit of respect uh, for either him or his or or what he did, his office, um, made him struggle with these more. But then was able to say, "Okay, uh, you and I are thinking two different things. Let's kind of figure out where this disconnect is." I I, I see that probably being a huge player in in uh, Pastor Boyle's thinking. Yeah, that's right. And to be able to do that from the scriptures. Mm-hmm. So to say, hey, you're forgetting about this verse. You're forgetting about this verse. Um, that's that's really, really important. And we praise God for those occasions and for those opportunities. Now, there's going to be one more thing. So we had the baptism question. We had the conversation with Pastor Graf. There's going to be one more conversation that um, that Pastor Boyle told me about that was particularly um, painful for him. And that is... Uh, when it was time for him to pick someone to disciple. So when you first get into crusades, you are being discipled. Someone is looking after you. As you advance through your college years, now you have people under you that you are discipling and training up and looking after. And here's here's how that went down. So this was um, this was late, late second year, my sophomore year there. And my student discipler who had become now a good friend. I'd spent two solid years with him. And he was, in my mind, just a wonderful theologian. He read his Bible. He was just really, in in many ways, an upstanding, pious Christian. And and spent we spent two years together, and he trying to train me in some of these um, really disciplines of how to read your scriptures, how to be self-controlled and so anyhow it came it came time where we sat down and he was saying you know i'm i'm going to be graduating uh, in in the spring uh, and and it's now time for you to start picking two guys that you would disciple and and really do the same thing that i've been doing and i said oh you know that would be great i was actually really looking forward to it there were i'd become fairly active at that point in our lutheran church on campus and there were a couple of freshmen that were in many ways showing great potential for being able to be in positions of leadership or whatever that meant at that time. And so I said, well, I've got these two guys at church that I would just love to visit with and disciple in that way. And he, he kind of did a smile and and I really didn't know what was coming, but he, he smiled. And he said, well, that's that's nice, but that's not really what we're looking for. He said, what we're looking for is for people to be raised up into the positions of leadership in crusade. So, well, isn't this all just for the church? And he said, 
really know. And for him, the church itself was not something that was really on his radar. Crusade was the thing itself, and church was a way of supplying and and reinforcing what crusade was doing. So for him, what mattered most was sustaining really the system of crusade. And and so the two guys that I wanted to disciple had not been coming to crusade. And and so they were not potential people. And he said, well, here, let me, let me give you this. And it was a selection guide, some essay written up by a staff person from crusade. And I don't know how old it was at that point, but but he handed it to me, and so we we left at that point, and I, I went back to my dorm and I read it, and I remember just ha- having read it, feeling crushed, because I realized when I read this that I had been, really fit into an equation, and I fit that equation, and that the friendship that we had was, a, a sort of calculated, friendship. Whether it was a friendship or not, I don't know. Um, it was it was painful. Because you fit the criteria. Yeah. I'm asking him, which you can't hear in the background, what he realized is that he simply fit the criteria of this brochure, and that's why this guy had chosen him. Hmm. And and that's the kind of crushing reality. And he said, yeah, that that's right. Oh, yeah. It had bullet points, and you... You look for people with these sorts of traits, and, and, and as you run through it, and I, I honestly don't even remember what those were. I tried to put the whole thing out of my mind as, as much as possible. But um, but it, it had personality traits. It had characteristics of how they carry their life and so forth. And and I as I looked through those and I could see myself fitting those characteristics, and I just saw him choosing me based on a list from a pamphlet that he had been given from the guy before him and it just um that was the moment that crusade uh, was done for me yeah i can i mean i I can see how how uh that'd be devastating for a for a young man he's what a sophomore in college and uh here he's he's uh invested his life to what he thinks is a is a spiritual truth and and come to find out, it became to be more of a, of a program. It became more of a, of a personality test than it was uh, the truth of the scriptures. That's right. It's and, and this is the danger always of. Well, it's the danger of departing from vocation from the institutions that God has established, and, you know what really what he's seeing here is one of the characteristics, of. Uh, of a movement versus an institution because now a person is being judged not on their own grounds, but rather on how helpful they are to the movement, Hmm. you see? And it completely destroys a person's value and it destroys their humanity. I mean, this pain that he was feeling, I mean, it might seem like a, a small little thing, but it is a profound, it's a profoundly different way that we interact with people when we interact with them uh, you know, as a as as free people created in the image of God and redeemed by the death of Jesus, versus, um, how how are you helpful to me, or you know, how are you helpful to this movement, the Campus Crusade movement, or even the Christian movement, and 
and this um this way of looking at people is utterly destructive but it's the constant temptation of the evangelical church to look at people this way you see you see what i mean oh yeah now i'm going to so we can talk, we've got the three things here so then i asked um i asked about the shift when did your theology begin to shift or when did you begin to see things and uh and here's how and, and this is going to happen pretty quick uh here and but here's how it goes baptism was a huge the more I read on baptism, I, I had to read on original sin. And wait, I'm going to pause him there. That's a that's a great point, and it's a great theological connection. The more you read on baptism, the more you have to read on original sin. Hmm. The two are bound up together, um, and you ca- you can't understand one without the other. You see, and and you see what's in fact kind of the theological thing that's boiling underneath and all in the decision for Christ and in the worship experience. And in the question about baptism, is the question about sin, and especially the question about um, what um, what role does our will can can our will have in conversion? So I'll start over here. Sorry for interrupting. By the way, baptism was a huge. The more I read on baptism, I I had to read on original sin, and it was there and. Warren, Pastor Graf had had also been good about pointing me towards the confessions. So on reading on original sin, not only in Wayne Grudem's book, but also in the confessions, and then even uh, I pulled out my Catechism of the Catholic Church and just trying to sort through these things. Because at that point, I was then trying to figure out, well, what does it mean to be Catholic? And what does it mean to be crusade? And I had been going to the Lutheran Church at that point. So trying to sort through these and, and finding out that original sin is not just a once and done, but it is really the source of my sin and, and who I am then as fallen and what that means. And when you have that perspective, you're you're not able to have the sort of pride, at least not in the same way. Certainly we still fall into pride all the time. But um, But when you know you're a sinner and you know that who you are as a fallen uh, son of Adam, uh, and and that you can't you can't get yourself out of it, that forces you to 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 look for and to ask and to find if I can't do it, how can I then be saved? <laughs> the, the, this is this end of self. Mm. It, it came. Um, in our previous interview that we did with Pastor Richards, it came by, just by realizing personally that he was unable to do all of these things that he knew God expected of him. Uh, here with Pastor Boyle, it comes in a profound way, but in a different way. It's the it's reading original sin and hearing the voice of God saying, "Hey, uh, you're not everything that you think you are." You know, it's the Scriptures convincing him that. Um, that he is in fact a poor miserable sinner and that he cannot ca- save himself uh that that is an impossible uh, impossibility so probably for the uh first time since going to college um he understands the law in its proper use that is to uh bring us to the end of self whereas um up until now at least in his college experience 
the law has been used as something doable to make myself a better Christian. So it was using it for the sake of pride. Um, that, I mean, so so uh, I've underlined all the Pauline passages that uh, talk about uh, you know praying unceasingly and striving towards that that goal and 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 becoming a super Christian by doing the Romans challenge, etc. And now finally. In the in the in the in this encountering of God's word and, and reading about baptism and then about sin, he realizes that uh, I cannot. In fact, I deserve um, I deserve punishment. I deserve wrath. That's right. Now I asked him. So our conf- he mentioned the confessions. That means the Book of Concord, the ten documents assembled in 1580 that kind of answer the question: What do the Lutherans believe in? Um, and one of the things that they say is that the the distinction between law and gospel is a is a brilliant light that um, when it shines, it makes the scriptures illuminate. You can understand what they're saying. So I asked him if he remembers that that light starting to come on or the light coming on, uh, and he told me about two things. Here's the first one. That came towards, uh, uh, it's kind of funny thinking about it, because my early junior year, I realized I had kind of left crusade, and I was now... Uh, firmly just attending church, but I, I was realizing that I needed to figure out what I wanted to do. And I had been urged by a, a number of people, by my youth director at our home church, by uh, my wife's mother, and, uh, and a few others to consider actually being a pastor. And then I realized uh, when I started looking into that, at least to be a Lutheran pastor, you got to be a Lutheran. <laughs> <laughs> I think... I think that's an important point. I just want to emphasize that. I can pause there. If you're going to be a Lutheran pastor, you got to be a Lutheran. So, okay. And they say for two years. So that that meant the time was, you know, ticking real quickly. I needed to get that done. I only had two years. So um, I I started asking our pastor on campus to uh, give me catechism classes or whatever that meant. I, I wouldn't have called it catechism classes at that point. I just said I need to be a Lutheran. And so he said, well, let's meet, and, and we talked through things. But I started reading a lot at that point. And even for the seminary, you have to take entrance exams, or at least I didn't know which seminary I wanted to go to. So I ended up taking all five of those entrance exams that St. Louis offered and ended up going to Fort Wayne. But but one of the textbooks is to read the catechism. So I started reading the catechism. And then it said law and gospel, and Walther's law and gospel. So I ended up reading that, I think, my senior year in college, and and I remember it uh, It was a particularly brilliant light, actually, reading through these things. And, and you know, I really didn't get held up all that much by the, the language. It was the old translation. And it was just, it was wonderful. And, and I read actually right after that, uh, Fire in the Staff. And that was uh, by Clement Preuss. That book in particular made it all very practical to me. And in a college setting in particular, it just brought into my my way of thinking. It brought all these loose ends together. Certainly, when I got to the seminary, I realized they were not all together. But but at that point, at least there was a clarity of thought that this is this is what I'm I'm looking for. And and I had become fairly active in our church and would teach Bible studies there. And it was these books that sort of brought at least an excitement. And there was something about it when we would read the scriptures and I could say, yeah, that actually makes sense. I, I, I'm going to pause there too. 
because this, um, if, if there's something that's just really quite wonderful about this, that this discovery between law and gospel, it does pull the, um, all of these loose ends together. Uh, it, 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 it gives a construct for understanding the words that God is saying, both of law and gospel. And it, it makes the Bible intelligible. And if, we, if we're not hearing the law and the gospel there, the Bible it still remains a closed book. And you can hear uh, th- 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 this joy, uh, this kind of this warmth, as, these, as, as Pastor Boyle talks about these loose ends being brought together and the... Um, and the Bible now being opened. I cut him off. He's just got a couple more seconds on this story, and then we can talk about it a little bit more. And it fits a whole lot better than certainly what I read in Wayne Grudem's book and then uh, what I was getting crusade. So that, so that this distinction between law and gospel um, is, is making the Bible into a lively book, into an open book, uh, into a comfort book. That's really, really, really amazing. Stunning. Hmm. I, you're right, though. That being the 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 texts or the verses of the Bible are sort of just texts and verses until we come to see that the uh, law has a a function on us, and the gospel has a declaration on us. And, in, and until until uh, we we see those two things, it it's really just verses and 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 text. Yep, and they don't. There's no. There's nothing that that pulls them all together. You know. So you might know this verse, and you might know that verse. This is that felicitous inconsistency that you're talking about. But there's no way that they that they kind of make sense. This is one of the treasures that we have in the catechism is that it pulls all the pieces together so when you're reading and when you're kind of sniffing out every corner of the Bible, you know how they relate to the big picture. And this is an absolute treasure that we have. And um, and, and one of the things that I hope that our little interviews here are doing is that for those of us um, you know, who grew up in the church and have had the treasure of the catechism all the way along, that that we would extol it even more and thank God for it even more. Uh, uh, that we would rejoice that um, that these things have always made sense to us, and we would realize what a treasure it has. So that you know, when your when your nephew comes back from college with the four spiritual laws, you can, you know, s- steal it from Elements him and rubbish. give him a copy of the Catechism. <laughs> yeah, grow a crazy looking mustache. And... I got one more for you, All right. and this is the final one. I asked, I asked uh, Pastor Boyle this question. Uh, how would you answer the question, what is the gospel, as you were a kid and when you were in Campus Crusade, and how would you answer it now? So here's his answers. Likely as a kid uh, growing up in the Roman Catholic Church, I would have said it's the New Testament. I, I probably uh, would never have been asked that, and I would never have thought of it, but uh, but if I were hypothetically, I'd I'd likely say the New Testament, uh, or or maybe just Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. In Campus Crusade, I think uh, we didn't use gospel as much as grace, but but even there, gospel would have been more in terms of good and joyful 
rather than bad and depressing i think i think that would have been my sort of sort of dichotomy that would run through my head gospel was from the heart it was it was music that was from the heart that um, made you feel like you were really worshiping god gospel was the feeling uh, maybe that's more the definition that it was the feeling that you got when there was someone that was speaking or giving a message that you really resonated with in hindsight i'd probably say felt comforted by but um but likely i would have called uh specifically what i would now say was the law i would have called that the gospel because i would have said that makes me feel really good again towards pride because i've done it or it makes me feel good because i now know what i i haven't done or i need to do and i can set out and, and go do that and that would that would have been a good feeling it wouldn't have crushed me um after certainly then reading and studying uh, some of the confessions and and walther and so forth and gospel became uh, as as it was set next to the law in those narrow uses uses um that's that's where it became that word of god that comforts and forgives me my sin <laughs> i love it i really love it i mean to see how trying to get to this definition of gospel as campus Christ, it just can't but then now to say look it it's the word of god that forgives my sins that's the gospel ugh the yeah. simplicity of Christ. And I think I think that is the problem with all of the different confessions and teachings and churches, is that it, it's tempting us away from the simplicity that we have in Christ. Um what, one thing that, that struck me about um Jeff Boyle's story is is um almost the, the the programmatic nature of everything he talked about. That I mean uh, he he shows up to campus, wants a free pizza, fills out the information card, and then like Mormon missionaries, the 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 campus crusade people knock on the door, and uh, and he's just kind of going through the program. And I, and I think his story is probably will, will probably resonate with a lot of people uh, because uh, they they know this, they they know the campus crusade thing, and uh, it was finally when he saw that it was. It was programmatic that he started to really take seriously uh, other theological thoughts, other other theological notions. We wanted to break away from, and this is the ironic thing, right? I mean, how often um, are, it, are people accusing the church of just being some institution, and and here we have something better—a free flowing uh, program, a free flowing movement. And it and for Jeff's story, it was the exact opposite. It was, it was the fact that I was just. I was a bullet point that made me want to seek the church, uh, seek the scriptures. Right. That's right. And, and it's connected to the theology because the theology of the evangelicals uh, is, is built on this, the will to believe, the, the will to become a Christian. And so you have to believe that the will is free, but you also have to believe that the will is open for manipulation. And so now the whole program is to manipulate a free will. Hmm. And so you're not, you're not uh, in fact, treating people 
uh, with dignity as truly free people because they're only free enough to be manipulated by you and to be and to be used by you and and this is why we you know you and I always laugh at the at the evangelicals talking about how you have to be authentic i mean when you hear a story like this you're like oh well that's why they're so worried about being authentic because their whole program is not authentic but the problem is you you're not going to you know be authentic to get yourself out of it the solution uh, is in fact to rejoice in the Lord's institutions, family, church, especially, uh, and his institution of the gospel, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, and the preaching of the forgiveness of sins. Good stuff. Well, thank you to Pastor Boyle for the time to do this. These, I think these stories are really quite incredible. Thank you to the listener for taking the time to listen. And again, we uh, love feedback uh, on this new little experiment that we're calling uh, Called by the Gospel. <laughs>